church. Let's hear the word of the Lord together this morning. We'll be studying from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 31. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many are one, so also is Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, or we were all given one spirit to drink. Indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it is not, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for that reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? And if the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. And if we were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The, key, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that, are, that, consider, um, that we consider less honorable, we close these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and the individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, leading, various kinds of tongues. Are all pro apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all, do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated, and I hope you can find your way to a copy of God's word. And if you don't have one, we can, you can find one in the back wall out here in the hallway. Yeah, we moved them out there. And uh, you can um, join us if you don't have a copy of God's word this morning. It's good to see you. Um, I just want to say something from the bottom of my heart. I could not be more grateful for this church. As Amanda noted earlier, um, and it really fits well with the series we're in right now on the doctrine of the church. But just to see what God has done in this people, what God is doing in this fellowship, and, the, and the, just the tireless efforts of the folks in this room to serve this church. And we can't even begin to count the hours of time and energy and of what's went in to get this, the building into the condition that it's in right now. I'm very, very thankful for you. And again, you know who you are. Um, so I'm very, very thankful for that. Virtually everyone that's a member of this church has played some part in this and it's been wonderful to watch. So we are in this series on the church right now. And we're going to continue in this series through the month of August as well. It's a doctrinal series. We, we kind of started this kind of uh, annual focus where we're going to do a doctrinal series sometime in each year, each calendar year. Last year we did our doctrinal series on the nature of salvation. This year we're going to do our doctrinal series on the nature of the church, the doctrine of the church. And it's, so it's part orthodoxy. And that means it's about really what is the church and why that matters to us because 
If we don't think rightly about the church, then you can't do the second part of it, which is orthopraxy. We can't really be the church and learn how to function as a church in a healthy way if we don't know what the church is. And, and so that's what we're here about in these, in, this, in these days, in this series. At Grace Church, we said from the very beginning, we're five and a half years old, a little over that now, that being a healthy church was more important than being a large church. Uh, I think we've held that to be true, not because we haven't grown. We've grown significantly in our fellowship over these years. But because we wanted to say health begets growth. Growth at any cost is not a, should not be a goal for any church, and it certainly wasn't a goal for us here at Grace. So the, this idea had some presuppositions for us both then and, and now. I just want to give you a little bit of how we thought about this, and the elders thought about this from the very beginning, and even things that we brought with us from Providence when we planted. That number one, the ultimate goal of the Christian is not you. So the church matters. The ultimate goal of the Christian faith is not you, it's not me, it's not work, it's not family. All those are wonderful things, but that's not the ultimate goal. So then therefore, number two presupposition matters. The church is not something then that we just squeeze into our calendar each week Um, As a book I'm reading right now by Jeffrey Johnson on the church, he says in there so well, Christians are healthier, friends, and this is what this is all about for us in this series, Christians are healthier when we rotate our lives around the life of the church, deeply connected to other believers in a, we use the word covenant, all right, a covenantal way, in a local way. This is important for us. The church shouldn't just be a kind of ad hoc, offbeat kind of commitment that we have. Now, what I want to say from the beginning here is that that, what that doesn't mean, and what you should not hear me say here this morning, is that we're supposed to be in the church building every second of every day. That's not what we're talking about. All right? We are talking about, and we're not talking about offering a cornucopia of every ministry under everything for every particular person, every individual here this morning, or to shuffle our kids to every church program that we possibly can get them into just so that we can stay away from the big bad world. That's not what we talk about when we say rotating our lives around the church. Um, no, but what we're trying to say, what I'm going to try to say, in this, particularly into this morning, is that Christians understand that they can't worship God as deeply when we live apart from the very community that we're designed to be a part of. That God has created us for community from the very beginning. That's how he did it. He did it in male-female relationship and husbands and wives, and he does it in the church. See, the Bible displays something beautiful about these covenantal relationships. There's another presupposition that I bring into this, for me personally, is, is this. We live in a culture that's deeply narcissistic. A culture that's deeply individualistic. And we've accommodated those values in the church. And the church should be weary of these things. Because the Bible displays something beautiful about what happens among the family of God. It shows and displays something otherworldly, if you will, than what happens in the church. That when we do it right, it creates something the world deeply desires but doesn't even know why it desires it. So when we do it right, church, and I think we are, or at least we're pursuing that, this is what the fruit of it will be. So my goal this morning, in this particular one, we're week three into this, is I want to just look at 
from 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, I want to help us behold the beauty of the unity and diversity of the local church that is displayed in the everyday, ordinary rhythms of our lives. Let me say that again. This morning, my goal is to help us behold the beauty and, and unity, I'm sorry, the beauty of the unity and diversity that is to be displayed in the ordinary rhythms of our church. And that there's something beautiful about that. The world seeks to divide those things that make us differ in this room. But the church has to recognize that our unity doesn't come within us, it comes within Christ and what he has done for us. So hopefully by this point you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And so let's just kind of just kind of remind ourselves of a few things. My goal is to show you three very high-level uh, thoughts from this text, and then, then I try to apply that to how we do church life here, and it's particularly how we relate to one another as pastors and elders and deacons and church membership. How does that all create this wonderful, beautiful mess that we call Grace Church on a given Sunday? Now, let's just kind of back up a little bit. Maybe you don't know about the, the Corinthian church, but the Corinthian church was a messy church. If you've read this, either one of these two letters in the Bible, it, you don't have to read very long before you realize, man, Paul was really <laughs> confronting a really serious situation in this church. Let me just show a few things to you, all right, just, just, in just a real high view. There were divisions in the church about who baptized who because they really valued that, apparently. There was a culture that prized celebrity and giftedness above ordinary faithfulness. So then Paul always had these people in the church, these super apostles who were trying to, like Paul wasn't a very extraordinarily impressive individual, but these super apostles with all their great giftedness were trying to impede the church saying, look, he needs to be more gifted. He needs to be more, you know, more celebrity. And, and so there was this celebrity culture that was kind of being prized in the local church there in Corinth. There was rampant spiritual and doctrinal immaturity in this church. There was deep sexual sin, some sexual sin that was even taboo for the Greek culture they were in. That's how bad it was. In the church. In the church. This is what Paul found. There were believers suing one another. There was indifference and irreverence towards God's commands of worship, and particularly the Lord's Supper and how we take it. There was um, abuse of manipulation of gifts of the Spirit. All kinds of things were going on in this church. And so Paul comes to the end, of the, near the end of his, this letter, and he begins to kind of help them see how they need to confront these worldly values that have found their ways into the church. And he uses here in chapter 12 um, this picture of the body, and that you've got one body, yet many parts. And from this text, I want to look at three things that I think will help us confront those worldly values that sometimes kind of penetrate into the church. So I'm just going to give them to you in order. We're going to walk through each one of them um, briefly. And then we're going to talk about how that plays out in the local church itself, okay, for us here at Grace. First, I want us to see in this text from verses 12 through 14, the unity and diversity that is displayed in the church. It's kind of in my title. Let's just read again. For just as the body is one and has many parts, and all the parts of that body, though many, are one body, so also is Christ. Just as the body is one, so also is Christ. So for Paul, at this point, as he's writing this letter to this Corinthian church, it was very important to him that the church protects the integrity of its unity. And then he'll go on to define what that unity is in just a, in just a few minutes. 
that their unity wasn't found in their uniformity. We'll talk about that again here in just a few minutes. But their unity was found in who they were in Christ. That the diversity of its members of the body were not a mark against their unity. Rather, it was a testimony of their unity. Does that make sense? That the fact that this group of people could gather to worship God on any given Lord's Day... As diverse as they may be, Greco, Hebrew, Hebrew, whatever it may be, that they could gather, it was not a testimony, a mark against it, it was actually a mark of their unity. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That when we see this happen in the local church, is something that we must ask God for. So what this means is that Christ alone was the banner under which they resided as a church and how under banner which we reside as a church, particularly in the local expression of the church and, and of course, the, the universal church as well. We see this in history too, right? That even in the 15th and 16th centuries when the Reformation was kind of taking speed, that they valued their unity. One of the marks of, their, of a true church was what? We talked about last week. Right preaching, right? Right preaching of the word. But even in that, um, these marks, the right preaching of the word was what, was, was what drove them together. In other words, the right truth, the right center Christ was the right center of this church. And so when that was abrogated, of course their unity would begin to fray. When the church abrogates preaching the gospel and does not keep Christ center as the center essential of, the, of, of, of our fellowship here, of course divisions will happen in your church. Why would we expect anything less? Because it's Christ who takes all the diverse parts and pulls them together into one body. And that was what Paul was trying to say. You guys are suing one another. You have an indifference to sexual sin in your church. You have divisions about who baptized you, whether it was, or who was the one who led you to Christ, Paulus, Paul, whoever, Peter. He said, of course you got divisions because you got your focus on the wrong things. And today, guys, it's just as prevalent in the church today. We see it everywhere. We've been tested deeply over the past two years as a church. As church is, I'm talking about in terms of the larger cross-section. And so what I want to encourage us to think about today is that beauty that God does something in a local church that takes, makes unity out of diverse things, diverse parts. For the church, we need to look for where we can and make room for diversity on great a matter of things in our, in our fellowship, so long as the banner of Christ and him crucified is the flag that we're waving. When that is what we're, what we're focusing on, nothing can divide us. Nothing can divide the church when we keep our focus on those kinds of things. It's amazing to me, just being speaking off the cuff here as, as your pastor, the things that we sometimes include in our definitions of what it means to be a faithful Christian that the reformers didn't include. That the church fathers wouldn't have included. I mean, think about the Apostles' Creed, how simple it was. And it was a statement to say, who's a confessor and who's not? But it amazes me today that how broadly and how deeply we go into some things that we would then use those as trigger marks to say, you're in and you're out. That had nothing to do with what the church fathers were trying to, to, to put in place in those early days after the church had gotten started and after Jesus had ascended to heaven. Friends, let's, let's take seriously that. Let's, let's be aware of the tendency, the danger of tribalism in the church. And tribalism runs deep, does it not? 
It can be doctrinal tribalism. It can be cultural tribalism. It can be political tribalism. It can be all kinds of, of things. But if I'm reading Ephesians 3, right, where Paul talks about the, the, the body as a whole and all the different parts himself, and I'm not going to go there and read it. We talked about this last year. I would have to draw the conclusion that if, as Jesus watches the church today, he would be appalled, flabbergasted maybe. The apostles would be flabbergasted today at how fast we are willing to label a brother or sister a heretic or not part of the family of God anymore. People who have very clear professions of faith and they trust Christ and Christ alone for their salvation. Friends, we should strive for that kind of unity here in our church. It doesn't mean that we are not seeking to be Bereans. Bereans were those group of people in Acts that wanted to consider all the teaching as they were being shared the, the good news of the gospel. And of course we need to be Bereans. Of course we need to open our Bibles. Of course we need to listen closely to the people in their, in their teaching. Of course that. And if you've been here long enough, you know that's what we are about here, Grace. But it also means that we take our time and we ask ourselves, what is central and what is not central in this discussion of who's in and who's out? So we protect our unity and diversity in the church. And this is by keeping everything under the banner of Christ everything. It's what we're about. It's what we'll always be about. It's what we started with, and it's what we're going to end with by God's grace. The second thing I want to see from this passage is that there's also an interdependency that is displayed through the church. So then he goes into more detail here in verses 15 uh, down through roughly 21. I'll just give you kind of a high glimpse of it. The foot cannot say, I'm not a hand, I'm not, since I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, or the ear can't say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body. And then it just keeps on going all in this pattern, but it says God has arranged each one of the parts of the body just as he wanted. If they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, verse 20, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. There's really two very practical things that Paul is trying to tell the church and help the church of Corinth understand here. Number one, and this should be obvious to all of us, and the fact that you're in the room means you probably get this. The notion of an autonomous Christian life is extremely foreign to the Bible. Meaning you're not called to go do your own thing as a Christian and then keep on waving the banner of Christ. That might be a stronger way of putting it. And it doesn't mean we don't go through seasons where we're maybe disconnected from a church, but we should be deeply connected to the local church. It's, it's just foreign to the Bible. Of, uh, solo Christianity is just foreign to the Bible. It just is. It's foreign to God's redemptive purposes because God didn't just redeem individuals. He redeemed a people. He redeemed a family. We talked about in week one of this series. This is what he's been doing since the fall. Actually, he was orchestrating all this before eternity passed. That he would send his son to come and collect the people for himself. And they would be his glorious people saved by his grace and his grace alone. Just like in marriage, the wife was made for the husband, the husband for the wife, Paul says, actually here in the Corinthian letters themselves, so the same is true for the, for the Christian. The Christian is designed for the church. It's just the way it's designed. It's just the way we're called to be. It's here that where people, every, people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue are invited to be family in Christ. Now, isn't it just funny 
that we live in a world that is panting for unity, panting for connection, panting for unity, yet they can never find it. But then we have this gospel truth, this gospel story that says all the tribes and nations are one in Christ. So when we begin to try to employ worldly ideas to, to overcome some of these divisions that are going in the world, instead of going right back to the gospel, we're missing it, aren't we? We just really are. It's, 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 it's here that Christians bear the image of Christ fully, is in the body of Christ. It wasn't good for man to be alone. God brings him a wife. It's neither good for a Christian to be alone. God gives you a church. And he helps you through the church bear the full image of God with, within that body of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? So whether it's this wonderful mosaic of young and old, female, male and female, brown skin or white skin, blue politics or red politics, yeah, right? That's important as God begins to bring, meld together this wonderful, beautiful Diverse body that still flies the banner of Christ everywhere it goes. Second thing, that second truth here from this, from this interdependency that's displayed in the church is that unity is not uniformity. So there's no such thing as solo Christians according to the Bible. At least that's not in view in Scripture. But we also need to recognize that unity is not uniformity. So there's, there's this group of us, and I grew up in this kind of tradition, that, that valued uniformity as an expression of unity. Some of you did too. And so in this tradition I grew up in, uniformity, like if you didn't believe the King James only, you were not a Christian. If you didn't believe in pre-dispensational, uh, pre premillennial, uh, whatever, you know, theology, you were not a Christian. That's just not true. That's just not true. The Bible says you do nothing to make yourself part of the family of God. Christ does everything. Right? Amen? So unity is not uniformity. I love Augustine's sage dictum. I mentioned it a couple of weeks ago. I'll say it again here. In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. In the essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. I just have to believe that much of the discourse that goes on in the evangel American evangelical church today misses this mark entirely from one of the, probably the chief of church fathers of the church. We need to seek to recover this. For Augustine, there was never a desire to reduce or be reductionistic in his theology or practice, but what it was was to, to have a finer point of what the target actually was. Isn't that amazing? When he says essentials unity, he's saying we need a very fine point that defines our unity, and that fine point is Christ and Christ alone. Nothing else. And that's what he means by this. It wasn't that Augustine didn't write thousands and thousands and thousands of pages on what it meant to be the Christian church and to, and to ex exposit the scriptures and whatever else. He did all of that. And all the reformers followed in that suit themselves. And all the people who followed him followed in those in his ways. So he wasn't trying to be reductionistic. He's not, this, this statement's not about, well, just be Jesus. 
like be like be be like Sunday school answer Jesus, and then all of a sudden it doesn't matter how you live and how you pursue holiness and that you don't read your Bible. No, none of that. But the church is defined not by our uniformity, but by the fact that we have been saved gloriously by Jesus. He lived the life that we did. We used to say this at Providence all the time. Joe and Sarah are here this morning. Joe's the lead pastor at Providence, and I hope you get a chance to talk to these guys before they leave. He's, they're finishing up sabbatical, and uh, we're glad to have him here this morning. But we used to say this all the time. I think I would imagine Joe still says it now. Jesus lived the life that we didn't. He died the death that we deserve, and he rose gloriously to give us a life we could not have earned on our own. Friends, this is what the essential is. This is where our unity is. We can differ on a few secondary issues, and we can even give charity on things that we would vehemently disagree on. But when we fail to these kinds of things, man, we just fail to have the spirit of the church that Christ has created. And this historical weight of this idea runs throughout church history. You know, guys, and you can go in my office, if you've been down there, you see, I like the Puritans, I like the Reformers, and got their silhouettes on my wall and all that fun stuff. Um, do, you, do you realize that, like, Augustine, Calvin, well, Spurgeon, who's much later, Zwingli, do you know they, they disagreed on a good amount of things? I mean, a lot of things. They disagreed on the role of the church in government. They disagreed on understanding the meaning and significance of the elements of the Lord's Supper. They disagreed on the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility in some places. Do you know that they disagreed on those things? But you know what they agreed on? Sola Scriptura. Sola Christu, Christ alone. Sola Gratia, grace alone. Sola Fide, faith alone. And sola gloria, for God's glory alone. That's what they agreed on. They might quibble on secondary issues. They might even quibble on cultural issues. But they never quibbled on Christ. They never quibbled on the, the authority of Scripture. And they never quibbled on their ultimate goal was to bring glory to God. Never. That is why the Reformation was so powerful. And that's why it took the way it did across Europe and eventually over here into our into our wonderful nation. So, th again, I just can't say this enough. The church traditionally has given great amount of latitude on all kinds of things. How we would bear the truth to the world, how we are faithful witnesses in the world, like that can look differently for each individual here. We've given latitude on things like, we've even given latitude on to charity for non-Christians, historically. Tyrant kings, man. In the, six, in the 17th century uh, England, when, when the Puritans were, 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 ra were trying to reform the church and there was the nonconformists and the conformists, the you know, Christians there, the churches, they still gave a lot of love even for these harsh and tyrant kings and queens that, that, would, that would seek to be antagonistic to their, their forms of Christianity. They still respected them. They still loved them. They still wanted them to see the, hearing the gospel these are, this is what we should characterize in the modern church, I think, that we sometimes have, we kind of get stuck in our Americanized version of Christianity, right, and evangelicalism, and we think this moment's more superior to the moments that have preceded us. Man, we need to get out of that mindset. We need to get out of that mindset. Yeah, we have very specific issues that we face in our nation, and they require very thoughtful, theological, you know, thinking about these kinds of things. 
but they still call us to essentials in unity, non-essentials liberty, and all things charity. So then, being as practical as I can, whether it's young or old, male or female, urban or rural, northern or southern culture, like I said, or blue or red political spheres, all of those can belong to the church if they are flying the banner of Christ. They're flying the banner that Christ crucified. He died to atone for your sin and my sin. He rose from the grave to overcome death for you and me. If that is your testimony, you're in a good place here this morning. And I hope you feel that. And there's a third thing from this text that I want to talk about, and I want to direct your attention to the little handouts that you have in your bulletin this morning. There was a profound level of honor established in the early church towards dishonorable people or unrespectable people. Look what it says there in verse 22. On the contrary, those parts of the body which are weaker are indispensable. And those parts of the body that we consider less honorable, we clothe these with greater honor. And our unrespectable parts are treated with greater respect, which our respect, respectable parts do not need. Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for one another. Amen. Now, what is Paul trying to get at here in this text? Well, in Paul's day... There was very dark black lines around the box of honor. And if you didn't make it in the box, you were not honored. You were not respectable. And so for the Greco world that he was speaking to and preaching to, especially here at the Corinthian church, like what was honored then, again, and you see these values being played out in the church that he, in which he's confronting, they, they valued what? Power. They valued wealth. They valued influence. They valued gifts. What they didn't value? Women, children, the poor, the weak, the lame. And you think it's just a Roman, Greco-Roman thing, the Hebrews did the same thing. The early church had this problem of the divisions between the Gentiles and the Hebrews, right? They valued so so much their purity of their, their Hebrew and their Jewish lineage that they would put distance between them and those who would be, you know, come from other cultural experiences or mindsets. Women may not have been treated nearly as bad as they were in Greco-Roman culture, but they were definitely treated as lesser than men. And they were continued to also treat their children poorly as well sometimes. They were treated as dogs at times, just like the household pet. And so this was the culture that they're planting churches in. No value for children. Does that sound familiar to you today? It should. It should be putting bells, ringing bells in your mind right now. That's why we are a pro-life church. Regardless of what your political persuasion is. Because a world that does not have value for children and the women who give birth to them doesn't value life at all. And so we as the church, and so Paul's speaking into this, and he's saying, here's how you want to show how the gospel is being played out with you. 
Honor the less honorable parts of the people that are part of you. Amen. Respect the less respectable parts of those. And this is what, this is what he's talking about. Show honor, show, and, and do what you can. What does it say there in verse, I think it's verse 20, verse uh, 26. So if one member suffers, all members suffer. And if one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Just before that, he says, and he says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable. And so what is he saying there? God says in his church, we work to lift up those people who would, in other cases, be considered lower in the rest of the world. Isn't that amazing? Now, I know we get all kinds of cultural debate about the word equity, and I know there's a lot of issues with that word. And I certainly believe there's problems with that word. But it seems to me that God puts a high value in the church of how we raise one another up in some capacity, wherever that might look like. We go, we go the extra mile to make those who would, know, who would be considered weak and low and unrespectable and unhonorable in the, in the world as far. And we put it in the church and we say, no, you're a brother. You're a sister because you and I fly and walk under the same banner that is Christ. See, Paul was confronting that cultural influence in this church of culture because he saw it being played out in their church. He saw the same values of the world that valued, that valued um, you know, celebrity and giftedness and wealth and influence. And if you didn't fall into those categories, you didn't have a place in the world. And the church says, there's no place for that in the church. And so he says, listen, you want to see the gospel go to work in your life? Here's what you do. You know how God condescended to you? To save you, you condescend to others and do you can to honor them and raise them up. That's how we see the gospel being played out in the local church. It's a beautiful thing. It's an otherworldly thing. And then he rounds out the rest of this text, and I'll just go over this on a very high level here just for a moment. And I just think it's interesting how he uses this at this particular point. Verse 28, and God has appointed these in the church, the first apostles and prophets and teachers, miracles and gifts, and you get it. And then he goes in and says, Are all, is everyone supposed to be an apostle? Is everyone supposed to be a prophet? Is everyone supposed to have these gifts of healing? And the answer is no. Absolutely not. But each one of those parts plays its part to make the church healthy. So at Grace Church and throughout church, recent church history, and we've said that there's, the, there's membership of the local church, and then they are served by what? Pastors and deacons and i have to believe that in god's wisdom he's showing how we live together in this mutual interdependence mutual submission with one another so that we display something profoundly different to the rest of the world on your little insert here i gave you a little picture Hopefully it'll help you see the relationship between the membership and the pastors and the membership and the deacons and the pastors and the deacons and how we, we mutually serve one another. If you're looking at the membership, the pastors, you see on there, it's the, the pastors are laboring for the souls under their care and for the membership, they're submitting and trusting to the oversight of their pastors. If you see over here with the de relationship to the deacons and the in the membership, the, the deacons are serving to care for the practical needs of the church, and the membership are actually received that care from the deacons. You see the relationship between the pastors and the deacons? 
Well, what is it? The pastors are identifying and delegating the needs of the church to this trusted leadership of the deacons. And you know what? And this is something I've got to grow in as a pastor. I trust them to do their work. Learning to let them do it and they do it better than I can do it. That's a hard one, right? But that's what the God has designed, this mutual interdependence within the local body of Christ. That's why you need good deacons for church. It's why you need plurality of pastors and elders in your church. Why? So that you can be, we can all be mutually edified together as one body. So the role of membership is to, is to, is to, to one, keep our focus on the proper confession. Remember what Peter said to Jesus? Matthew 16, we said a couple weeks ago. The proper confession is what? That you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Isn't that what we've been talking about this morning in our unity? Our unity is the banner of Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That is our proper confession. Now, there's a whole lot more to that, of course. But, but at the end of the day, let's not get too technical. Let's remind ourselves as a membership, if you're here and that's your profession this morning, that Christ crucified for you, saved you from your sin, and raised you to new life in his resurrection, that is your call. And it also means that you work together to identify other people who would have the same profession. And you gather together in local churches. So you start every church, not with the pastors, not with the deacons. You start every church with who? The members. We believe in Jesus, and, we're going to, and we want to identify those who believe Jesus with us. And then your job from that point is to say, okay, well, who in our church now helps us guard ourselves against those things? And you go out there and you go, well, then we need pastors and elders. And that's what the beauty and wisdom of the Bible says, that these guys would select pastors and elders to what? Labor for them. That's my job, to labor for you. Labor for your purity in your confession, to teach you sound doctrine, to protect those who have a proper confession, to chase down stray sheep when they bring them back into the flock. Good pastors lead and steer the flock to green pastures. So there's a directional leadership, there's a spiritual leadership in the call of the pastor and elders, and, it, and frankly, friends, I couldn't do this alone. I'm, I'm blessed to have three amazing men who walk us alongside me, and, and we hope to bring a, a couple more men to you in the, in the months ahead that uh, will join us in that task. Guys who will do the exact same thing and hold up one another. It's not our call to lord over you, to get you to do everything we want you to do. There's a lot of abusive leadership that goes on in the church sometimes under this heading, but that's not our call. Rather, we protect and we direct you forward as under-shepherds. Think about how you move a herd. I, we, Amanda and I watch um, mountain men at home. And there's these guys who, like, they have to move a herd of bison, right? Well, you can't, it's hard to move a herd of bison by yourself, isn't it? You usually need a guy in the back. You need a few guys on the flank, right? And to keep, these guys, keep these, this herd moving in the direction so they can find a better pasture to graze on during the winter. That's what pastors do. There's a guy in the back pushing. It's very, rarely is there anyone up front. They're pushing from the back and they're hemming you in on the edges and they're keeping the flock moving. Going in the direction Christ wants them to go. This is what it means to be pastors in the church. And these are the kind of men, by the way, you want serving your church. And I can guarantee you this. 
when we talk to men for future pastoral and eldership in our church, this is one of the first things we begin to look for. Are these men who want to hem in the, the flock and chase down the stray flock that kind of get outside the boundaries every once in a while and pull us back in so we can keep on running towards Jesus? So what's the purpose of deacons then? Well, deacons serve, and they facilitate the everyday needs of the church. And this can be men, this can be women in our church who serve the, the, the good needs of our church. They assist the pastors in the practical needs of the church. But they don't just do that, they actually protect the unity of the church. Think about Acts 6. Why was Acts 6 so important when they had to go get these deacons? The apostles were out there and they said, listen, we need to devote ourselves to, to preaching of the word and to prayer. Well, what was going on in the church was there was this division emerging in the early church between the Greco-Hebrews, like the, the, we call them the Hellenist Jews, and the, the Jews, the actual pure Jews, if you want to say it that way. And they, and they were saying, listen, we're not getting treated fairly. And the, and the apostles said, well, listen, for, so we can focus on the word and prayer. We need to raise up some folks who are going to protect the unity of our church. That's what your deacons do. They, they meet your practical needs, and then they serve alongside the pastors to protect the unity of the church. Now, doesn't that bring a whole lot more depth and richness to what this is about that we do each Sunday? And why we get together in small groups and why we will get together in Sunday school in a few weeks. Friends, at the end of the day, and I'm going to go ahead and land the plane here. The church is not a place that parrots the values of culture. That's what Paul's dealing with here in 1 Corinthians. You've let the culture drive your church. Don't do that. Christ drives the church. And when Christ drives the church, the church keeps being faithful to what God has called her to do. I love the Second London Confession. You guys know I do. Chapter 27, paragraph 1 and 2. I'll read it real quick and then we're going to pray. All the saints are united to Jesus, their head, by his spirit and by faith. So not of their own doing, Right? Although this does not make them one person with him, they have fellowship in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Since they are united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obligated to carry out these duties both public and private in order, in an orderly way, to promote their mutual good both in the inner and the outer aspects of their lives. Some of you are called to be pastors, some of you are called to be deacons. Some of you are called to just be faithful members. We're all equal under the sight of God, but we all play our different parts in the same body. Amen? Amen. So when we have people who come in here, let's treat them as people who have something to give to the church, even if it's something that we're not expecting them to give to us. Isn't that amazing? So whatever you may be. Saints by profession are obligated, it says in the, second in the second paragraph, to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in worshiping God and in performing other spiritual services that promote their mutual edification. That's a beautiful sentence. That's your job. That's my job. To maintain a holy fellowship and communion with one another. Friends, as we take this Lord's Supper here this morning, we are telling the world our unity is in the spilt blood of Christ and his broken body for us and nothing else. Nothing else. God, help us this morning as we come to the Lord's table and be unified at that place, not because of things we do, not because of our worthiness to come to the table, but simply to come and be um, reminded that we still 
are invited to the table each and every week by God's grace and by God's grace alone. Help us now. It's in Christ's name. Amen.